Chapter forty of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter forty. The End of All Things. Mr. Jebb's cold became much worse after Tinker's dismissal. He had been guilty of extreme imprudence on the night which followed that domestic revolution. Summoned suddenly by one of his distant patients, he had gone out on foot and had stayed out till after midnight, much to the discomfiture and alarm of his devoted wife. The natural consequence of this disregard of self showed itself in a violent influenza, which kept Mr. Jebb confined to his bed for two days, half smothered under a mountain of blankets, with his head swathed in flannel, and his patients left to their fate. This self-devotion of Mr. Jebb, in going forth from his fireside at the call of duty, after having made up his mind to stay at home and nurse himself, was a new development of character which sorely puzzled Jane Barnard. During her residence under the parish doctor's roof, she had seen quite enough of him to know that unselfishness was not his dominant quality. He was fairly good-natured, in an easy-going, self-indulgent way, but self was assuredly the central figure in his own particular plan of the universe, and nothing seemed less likely than that he should peril his own health by a muddy walk of four or five miles out and home, in order to give the solace of his skill to an unimportant patient. The more deeply Mrs. Barnard considered the matter, the more did she incline to connect Mr. Jebb's absence from the domestic hearth with the mysterious disappearance of Tinker. She had made inquiries at the three sugar-loaves, and had there learnt that Tinker had knocked up the house at a quarter past eleven, and had asked for a night's lodging, that he was obviously the worse for liquor, and had therefore been refused such accommodation, whereat he had resorted to language of a particularly savage and blasphemous character, and had gone on his way. From that hour, no one belonging to the sugar-loaves had seen him. Where had he been, and what had he been doing with himself between half-past nine and a quarter-past eleven? It was not likely that he would return to his haystack, having the means of procuring himself a supper and a night's lodging. One of two things must have happened. Either the conversation in the lane had been overheard by someone, and the groom had been bribed to give Mrs. Barnard the slip, or the man had changed his mind deeming the promised reward too small or too uncertain to compensate him for the risk he must run in trying to earn it. In any case, it was clear that Tinker had gone, and it seemed more than likely that he meant to hold no further communication with Mrs. Barnard. While this disappointment was still fresh in her mind, her thoughts were suddenly turned into a new direction by a letter from the governor of the prison where her father was confined. She had contrived to see this gentleman at the time of Vargas's removal from Highclere jail to the convict settlement, and her story, told with an intense earnestness rare in women of her class, had interested him deeply. He had promised to do all in his power to alleviate her father's position, and to bring him into a right way of thinking. "'Your father's health has been failing for some time,' he said, "'and for the last three weeks he has been in the infirmary.' He is not suffering from any painful or incurable disease. His malady is the wearing out of the machine, the natural result of a life of hardship and deprivation. 
if you would like to see him again and i know you would it would be well to come at once the doctor tells me that in cases of this kind it is very difficult to calculate how long a patient may last he may linger for weeks or months or may expire suddenly going out like the flame of a candle in this case the decay seems rapid the ship by which jane barnard was to have sailed had already gone all her plans having been altered by tinker's revelation and mrs jebb was congratulating herself upon her good fortune in keeping so excellent a servant and now jane told her mistress that she must have three days leave of absence or possibly might be obliged to remain away still longer indeed ma'am i think you'd better suit yourself as quick as you can she said i can be no more good to you i have to go and see a sick relative and if he dies i must go to my home in america so i don't see the use of my coming back here except to fetch my luggage mrs jebb sighed and assented but i don't expect ever to have anyone i shall like as well as i do you jane she said piteously mrs barnard packed her box and left the homestead early on a bright june morning so early that she had a full hour on her hands before the omnibus left osthorpe to convey railway travellers to the station at highclere this surplus hour she meant to employ in going to tangley manor mr blake had distinctly told her that she was to make no further appeal to him but to a person of jane's persevering temper this counted for nothing she was determined that if it were any way possible morton blake should see her father before he died it was only eight o'clock when she presented herself at the manor-house but morton was an early riser and had already made the round of his garden and stables and was strolling on the lawn before the house he recognised the intruder as she came along the carriage drive and he went across the grass to speak to her you have come again he said in spite of what i told you the other day oh yes sir because something has happened which makes it my duty to trouble you please read that letter sir she gave him the governor's letter and waited in silence while he read it are you going to your father yes sir i'm going from here to osthorpe lane where i shall meet the omnibus for highclere and you're going from highclere to london and from london to portland yes i shall not get to portland until late in the evening too late to see my poor father i'm afraid I shall have to wait till tomorrow morning for that. And what do you want me to do? Oh, sir, cannot you guess what I want? I want you to see my father before he dies. I want you to hear his story from his own lips. For then, strange and unlikely as it all seems, I don't think you will refuse to believe him. Oh, think, Mr. Blake. It is not a very great sacrifice that I ask from you. It will only cost you two days of your life, and it may put the whole story of the past in a new light. "'You are an importunate woman,' said Morton. "'But I believe you are an honest woman.' "'Will you go to Portland, sir?' "'Yes,' answered Morton, after some moments' thought. "'I will.' "'At once? Without much delay, at any rate? You see what the doctor says.' i will go to town by the night mail and will go to portland by the first train to-morrow morning jane barnard thanked him warmly earnestly and in the fewest possible words 
and then she went across the sunny common, above which the skylarks were carolling joyously, to Osthorpe Lane, and waited till the queer, stunted-looking omnibus, which seemed to belong to a particular breed maintained for such work, came grinding along in a cloud of dust, and took her place in the musty interior, where there were only two other passengers. She had no encumbrance but her handbag, and thus lightly burdened she set forth on her lonely journey, gladdened by the thought of Morton's promise. He was the kind of man whom nobody would ever think of doubting. His word, once given, was an all-sufficient security. At two o'clock on the following day, Jane Barnard and Morton Blake were both seated in one of the well-ventilated, spotlessly clean cells of the infirmary at Portland, the fresh sea air blowing in through an open window near the ceiling, the sunbeams dancing on the whitewashed wall, and Humphrey Vargas lying on his narrow bed, weaker than a newborn infant, and as near the unknown darkness that girdles life round as the babe that has just been called into the light. He was dying. The last threads in the strand were fast ravelling out. Quietly, painlessly, and in full possession of his senses to the last, the narrow span of his days was wearing swiftly to the close. Jane sat beside his bed, with the horny, toil-furrowed hand clasped close in hers, loving him in that last hour almost as well as she had loved him thirty years ago, when she was a little girl and gambled on his knee, and could not believe that there was a fault in Daddy. Infinite pity grew into infinite love in these last hours of the sinner's life. "'Mr. Blake has come all this way to hear the truth from your own lips,' she said gently. "'You'll tell him everything, won't you, father dear? Tell him why you confessed to a crime that you hadn't done, why you told a lie to make yourself blacker than you were.' "'I'd been that drove and worried,' said Vargas, fixing his glazing eye on Morton, with a look that had all the awfulness of death in it, mingled with a raven-like cunning which was grotesquely suggestive of Barnaby's famous bird. It was constables here and magistrates there till there wasn't one blooming corner of this blooming earth where a poor bloke could smoke his pipe in peace. Sometimes it was the casual ward, and sometimes it was the lee side of a haystack, and sometimes it was the jail and the jail was a deal cleaner and comfortabler than the pauper's refuge. What had I got to lose, do you think? Nothing. What had I got to gain? Everything. If I'd confessed only to cleaning out a dead man's pockets, society would have made nothing of me. Oh, he's a common kind of everyday criminal, he is, folks would have said. Let him bide. But society's all as interested in a murderer and the colder blooderer he does it, the more society values him. I thinks, as I sat under the edge, hard by where Mr. Blake lay that blooming October night, as it wouldn't be a bad investment for the fag-end of a pauper's life. A lot of old tabbies would come and sing psalms over me, and tell me the bigger sinner I was, the more sure and certain to go to glory if I took kindly to their tracks and sung their hymns loud enough. And I thought as how they'd never hang me, an old un like me, for a murder done twenty year ago. And if they didn't hang me, I thought they'd make much of me as an interesting subject for tracks and hymns, a victim to a guilty conscience, 
and a shining example to hardened sinners. "'Are you telling the truth?' asked Morton, who had never removed his eyes from the dying man's face during this statement. "'Why should I tell you a lie?' demanded Vargas with a ghastly grin. "'I've nothing to gain by lies now. I've told precious many, but now I'm sliding down into a pit that none of you can pick me out of. I may as well indulge myself with the luxury of truth. I didn't kill Muster Blake. I never lifted hand against him. I can look in your face, you being his son, and say that with a clear conscience. And it ain't in many things my conscience is clear, is it, Jane, my girl? It ain't clear of being a bad father and a bad husband and a drunken blackguard, but it's clear of shedding a fellow creature's blood. When I came along Osthorpe Lane that night at dusk, hard by the pollarded oak, I see something lying in the ditch, and I goes down on my marrow-bones to see what it is. It was a gentleman in a red coat, lying face downward in the mud, dead as a door-nail. I turned him over gently, and I laid my hand upon his heart, and I made certain sure that the life was out of him, and that there was nothing I could do to bring it back. And then, without no malice again him, I took his watch and chain and emptied his pockets. His property was no use to him any more, poor bloke, and Lord knows I wanted it bad enough. Where had you been all day? Oh, hanging about the lanes and woods, pretty much as I told Sir Everard, only that part about seeing Mr. Blake ride by and going up to him and taking hold of his bridle, that was all lies. A man who lies once will lie twice, said Morton. I don't know what to believe. The dying man's utter godlessness, his disregard of all the virtues from his boyhood upwards, made his testimony of so little worth. A man who would swear anything, doubtless, to serve any purpose. Yet here and now, with the grave so near, what object could he have to serve? What gain or comfort could he get by lying? "'Do you know and believe that you have an immortal soul?' asked Morton earnestly. "'That after you have cast off the worn-out husk of life, "'you must answer in another world for the deeds you have done in this?' Well, "'That's what the chaplain has taught me,' answered Vargas meekly. "'He's a educated man, and he ought to know.' "'But do you believe in a world to come?' Oh, "'Yes.' I believe that this world could never be so rough on a poor varmint like me if there wasn't something better somewheres else to make things square for us. This was a self-interested way of considering the subject, but the man seemed sincere. And knowing that you are on the brink of the grave, do you declare that you did not kill my father? I do. Do you know who did? No. End of chapter 40